the new fully electric Audi e-tron GT. Enjoy the breathtaking performance and design of the future of electric mobility from Audi. With Quattro-inspired flared wheel arches and matrix design LED headlights, every element has been carefully considered and selected to help deliver a thrilling drive. And with an acceleration of 0 to 100 kilometers per hour in 4.1 seconds, the Audi e-tron GT is performance electrified. Start the future now and visit audi.ca to learn more. Rare Earth's metals are found in everything from electric vehicles to solar panels and wind turbines and all manner of high-tech products. But most of us have no idea what they are if we've ever heard of them. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to Konstantin Karianopoulos, chief executive of Toronto-based Neo Performance Materials, which processes rare earth metals in facilities around the world. It's not a standard rare earth company in that it doesn't operate any mines, Instead, it makes magnetic powders and other intermediate products that end up in a lot of things you see in your household. Much to the consternation of leaders in the West, China dominates the rare earth sector, the end result of an industrial strategy that its planners flawlessly executed over multiple decades. NEO operates in both the West and throughout Asia, including China, and I asked Karianopoulos about the brewing international tensions related to rare earths. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Constantine Karianopoulos, thank you so much for joining me today on Down to Business. Thank you, Gabe. Good to be with you. It's great to have you. Let's start at the top because a lot of people don't know. Rare earths metals are critical to modern technology. What are they and what do they do? Well, rare earth metals or rare earth elements are, you know, things that you know you will find in nature. If you remember your grade 11 and grade 12 chemistry, they're on the periodic table. At the bottom of the periodic table, they all occur together and they're fairly unique. They have, you know, some properties, physical and chemical, that make them very useful in the production of electronics, solid state, in the production of magnetic materials, catalytic materials, all kinds of functional materials that they have a very wide applicability across many industries and many functionalities. And so one of the things that's interested in me is because they're in headlines and there's a lot of interest in them lately. But when you actually ask what they do, people will say things like, well, you know, the seat in your car, if you want to move it back, that used to be a motor that does that. Now it's a magnet and that magnet is rare earths. So are these things basically just magnets? Well, the, as I mentioned, the, the magnetic applications is a big part of the overall scope of the rare earth offering. Uh, but there's many other applications. And, you know, those and, and we, we're talking about them now because one of the more interesting areas where rare earths are applied are in magnets, as you mentioned, because rare earth magnets are very strong. They can be very small, and they, if you use them in an electric motor, these motors become smaller, uh, lighter, and much more energy efficient than motors that they replace. And therefore, if you are designing a state-of-the-art electric vehicle today, I think you should really take a hard look at designing a, a rare earth permanent magnet electric motor or a, a group of motors to go into that electric vehicle simply because you will end up with something that's a lot more efficient. And for a given battery pack, you will add 10, 15, 20% to the range of that vehicle if that vehicle is propelled by electric motors that utilize rare earth magnets. 
Right. And so they're critical to electric vehicles. And there are other applications, as you mentioned, solar panels, wind turbines. But one thing that I thought was a little misleading about them, maybe you can clarify, is that people have told me they're not actually that rare. What is rare is finding them in enough quantity that it makes sense to dig them up and extract them from the earth. And it's rare to find the ability or the expertise to know how to process them and to have the facilities to do that. Yeah, indeed. It's very difficult to find them in commercially viable quantities in the ground. In fact, I believe more exploration and junior mining companies have gone bankrupt and have gone into production in this space over the last 20 years. I think the the term rare probably has more to do with the early days of the periodic table, say 100 years ago, when because these elements all occur together, and they're very, very similar, separating them from each other and purifying them individually was an extremely difficult thing to do. So the rarity may have to do with the chemical properties and the ability of people to process them or recover them, whether it's from a mining perspective or a processing perspective. But yeah, they have not been easy to to get your hands on the individual elements. And hence, I think the early chemists and developers in the industry called them rare. And they also called them earths because, you know, they're not really earths, although they start from with minerals in the ground in the earth's crust. So it's a, it's a combination of mis- misnomers, I guess uh, you could say. Yeah. And I actually wanted to step back for a second and talk to you. You've been around rare earths, working in the rare earths for a couple decades now, and you took over as CEO of Neo Performance Materials this past summer, but you were chair of the company before that. Did you always know like that you were going to be working on these types of metals? <laughs> Actually, yeah, I, uh, I, I studied in, at the University of Toronto. I did my undergraduate in chemical engineering. Yeah, I graduated in 1983. You're probably too young to remember that, but there was a recession in 83. So I decided to stay at school and do a master's in chemical engineering. After that, my first job was with Imperial Oil, ESSO in Canada, Exxon. And then in the early 90s, I joined the founder of NEO, Peter Gundy, uh, a legendary uh, investor, processor, processor, investment banker here in Toronto. And we started this up. So while I was studying, I had no idea what rare earths were, but I think I was the only chemical engineer that Peter Gundy knew at the time. So he and I were talking about it. And eventually I, I got hooked. I, I found the whole field fascinating. What rare earths do in modern technology is very, very unique and, and really unparalleled. And I've ended up spending the last almost three decades of my career doing just that. So this CEO stint is my, my second kick at the can. I, I was CEO and I came back to the CEO chair about just under a year ago in sort of July of 2020. And I, one of the things I was wondering was, how have the applications for rare earths changed? Were they in different technologies back then than they are now? Yeah, they, it, it's amazing. Every five years or thereabouts, there's something new that comes out with rare earths that becomes really big. In the 70s and 80s, and even 90s, probably the main or the most valuable application was the generation of light and color on TV screens, the old uh, CRT tubes. 
The color red was produced by a speck of yttrium and europium, two rare earths that were combined to do that. The, the green was also uh, rare earth based, the blue. Eventually, that gave rise to TFT LCDs, again, the uh, low energy lights. I recall 15 years ago, 40% of the value of the rare earth industry was in low energy lighting and TFT LC screens. And of course, that is all gone because, you know, low energy lights have been replaced with uh, LEDs that use a very, very, very minute amount of rare earths. So the, the, the industry has always been in a flux. The, some of the fascinating technologies that I've, I've seen and I've come across in our industry include lasers, very advanced magnets that drive, you know, micro motors in, in everyday life, whether it's the, the buzzer on your phone or the motor that drives your focus and zoom in your, in your camera, the seat in your car, most likely. A, a very wide applicability, but, you know, 10, 15 years ago, the bulk of our applications were in the electronics area, consumer electronics, office electronics. There were more than 50% of our revenues. Automotive at the time was 10, 15%. Today, it's the exact opposite. Automotive is over 50% of our business. Uh, different components and different parts of um, of the automotive industry, including both internal combustion and, more importantly, the emerging EV industry, and the bulk of the rest is electronics. Um, so there's there's a constant flux, and I'm glad my colleagues and I have had a front row seat not only in this industrial development, but also in, in how the economies of the world have shifted from the west to the east, and now back to the west, and and so on. It's not, it's like an anthropological experiment that we're observing up close. It must be fascinating. Like, And that brings me to another question I wanted to ask you, which is that in the U.S., President Biden has sort of suggested that rare earths are a potential national security issue because right now China mines something like 70 percent of the world's rare earths, and it's responsible for 90 percent of the complex processing that turns them into magnets and various other things. And I wanted to ask you about this because you're the CEO of a company that has operations not only in China, but also in North America and Europe. And, you know, there are some people who say that rare earths could ignite a cold war between the West and China. And I was kind of curious what your take on that is. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm chuckling because, um, again, just like every so many years, there is a new application that you know, brings in an, almost a new industry to the table. This narrative has been making the cycles. And 10 years ago, it was exactly the same. There were predictions of a Cold War. Again, the narrative was to push for the rare earth independence from China. Uh, you know, these things come and go. On, on one hand, uh, I think President Biden is correct to identify rare earths as critical material to national security. And I don't mean that in the defense angle, in the defense sense. Rare earths are critical to industry. And as long as you have an industrial economy that is the, the baseload of your economic activity, then you do need access to rare earths, especially if that industrial economy is built on manufacturing. Rare earths go into, as I mentioned, uh, automotive in a big way, electronics, 
robotic for precision, high torque motors, you know, hair dryers, vacuum cleaners. Um, so you can't really have an industrial manufacturing economy without having access to these materials. So as long as the fear is there that at some point you may lose access, then your natural conclusion is that you need to develop access and you have to have secure uh, supply chains uh, around uh, rare earths. On the other hand, uh, we did have some examples of supply chain disruptions. Back in 2010, there was a spat between China and Japan. But I think the lesson we learned from that example is that when a globalized economy develops, the interrelationship between industrial states is such that really makes isolating trading partners or embargoing trading partners, you know, irrational. China exports rare earths to Japan. Those rare earths become critical components that come back to China and get assembled into iPhones, iPads, laptops, you name it. And then they get re-exported. So I think the idea that somehow one industrial economy will destroy another industrial economy or by slash, quote unquote, weaponizing rare earths as a means of you know trade, I, I, I think remains to be proven because I have not seen an example where this happened and it had legs. It lasted. I mean, yes, it happened before, but the moment the regulators and the planners realize the about what that interdependency means you know by restricting rare earth exports to Japan or Europe or the United States China would be ultimately hurting their own economy and that is a no go so you know this is what i meant earlier by interdependency you know this idea of decoupling it's easy on paper it's extremely hard in real life. And I also think it's extremely unwise because economies are interdependent and, you know, more integration, more expansion along friendly terms really helps the peaceful coexistence of states. I, and I get it. It may be just the Pollyannish view of the world, but at least in my experience, it, um, it has worked in the past. Part of China's dominance, as I understand it, is that it has this huge iron ore mine where rare earths are kind of mixed in with the iron ore, but they get them as a kind of bonus byproduct. So they're basically free as long as they mine the iron ore. And for years, this has been challenging for Western companies to compete on price. But I wanted to talk to you about that and just wanted to ask you about the recent deal you did where you tried to sort of come up with a way to do this in the West. Sure. This is <laughs> this is a complex question. Let me try to unpack it. So yes, you're absolutely right. That's how the Chinese awareness of rare earths started. When in the 80s, Inner Mongolia, you know, the, the Chinese province uh, has very large iron ore resources. There's a massive complex that takes the iron ore and processes it into iron and steel. Well, in the tailings of that operation, in the waste material, that's one of the richest rare earth sources in the world. So effectively, China had a source of rare earths at effectively zero mining cost. So they, they developed a whole industrial strategy around that where 
starting from a very low-cost raw material. They couple that with decades of investment in R&D, education, infrastructure, and they ended up two, three decades later absolutely dominating this industry around the world. But again, they had an industrial strategy and they executed it because they always knew that in order for China to develop an industrial economy to compete with uh, Japan, Korea, the United States and Europe, they needed to have their own in-house ability to produce and utilize rare earths. So this was exactly something that the Chinese planners identified as in being in their own best interest, and they went after it. So China did what China had to do. And I guess it's up to everyone else to carve out a path for their own economies and then decide what it is that we all need to do to get there. So now, the second point of your question was energy fuels and, uh, and the alternative supply chains that we have established with them. Well, it so happens that NEO, we own the only rare earth processing facility in Europe. And today we get raw materials from Russia. And uh, we did a deal in the United States with a company that is the largest integrated uranium producer in the United States uh, called Energy Fuels. And we identified a byproduct material that is a byproduct from a mining operation in Georgia by a company called Kimors a very large producer of titanium and zirconium uh, materials. But in their tailings, similar to, to Inner Mongolia, in their tailings, they have very, very high concentrations of rare earths in a mineral called monazite. That mineral then goes to energy fuels plant in Utah. You know, there's trace radioactive element concentration in that material, but that's energy fuels, bread and butter. They remove it in Utah, their plant, and we've worked with them to help them put together a flow sheet that produces a raw material that we then buy for our plant in Estonia. And that raw material is ideal for that plant and it's free of radioactivity. So, you know, it's it's the best of all possible worlds. You start with or zero or low cost starting material, you use available industrial infrastructure to get it to the point of you know adding value to it as a feed material for our facility. We process it in an existing facility and it's a project that had tremendous capital efficiency very low cost, very high value output uh, as a result of that. You were able to put this deal all together during a pandemic. You took over during a pandemic. What's it been like working across so many different borders during a global health pandemic? You know, great question. I I, I think this pandemic, I, I think we're learning all kinds of lessons. It is more difficult trying to get a deal done without being able to meet face to face. You know, when there's a deal to be done, I'd really like to be across the table from someone, you know, look at their eyes and then shake hands at the end, which unfortunately, we can only do that virtually these days. But also, the world is adjusting. So this time, 10 years ago, I would have been on a plane once a month crossing an ocean. I turned 60 recently, so I don't think I could do that as well anymore. But I can tell you, I can handle uh, Zoom and 
uh, teams and, and virtual work uh, a lot easier. So by and large, knock on wood, and I'm knocking on my forehead as I'm saying this, we've all been healthy and our plants have been running. And, and the fact is that in 2021, economies of and demand have come back with a vengeance. So we're running as hard as we can. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about how things are evolving. It's not that I, you know, I'm tired of Zoom and uh, and Teams, but I, I wouldn't mind seeing people in person, especially my colleagues around the world and, and spending time with them. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on the show, Constantine. It's great to talk to you. Gabriel, as always, it was a pleasure talking to you and uh, hopefully we'll do this in person one of these days. I can't wait. That was Constantine Karianopoulos, Chief Executive of Neo Performance Materials. That's this week's episode of Down to Business. Special thanks to the team behind this episode, including Bryce Hall for music and production, Yudula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. If you want to support Down to Business, you can rate us on your podcast app and share this episode or any episode with a friend. I'm Gabe Friedman, and until next week, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.